If you're having a seat, if you guys don't mind opening into Exodus chapter 15, we're going to be picking up where Blake left us off last week in Exodus 15. As you're turning there, I'll just tell you guys, as we walk through Exodus 15, 16, 17, and 18 this morning, we're going to be walking through a series of events and series of narratives that are going to very much resemble a roller coaster for the nation of Israel. And God is going to move them through a series of dramatic highs and dramatic lows, and he's going to move them over and over again. And it's going to be dizzying, and it's going to be nauseous, orienting for the nation of Israel, and maybe even for ourselves a little bit this morning. I'll admit to you that as I think about roller coasters, I think for many of us, we think back to our first moment with a roller coaster. I don't know what yours was. I think back to our boy who was two or three at the time, and we were in Disney, and we took him on Space Mountain. I think he hit some kind of minimum height level, and we just said, let's do it. I hung on to him and clung on to him so that he would not fall out in the dark. And he was incredibly quiet through the entirety of the roller coaster. And we walk out, and he's usually chipper, he's usually very verbal, and he's not said a word. And we said to him, hey, Colt, what you think? And he says, well, I'm alive. <laughs> it's like, wow. Clearly, somewhere in the roller coaster, he thought his life and his well-being was very much an uncertain and very much at stake at the time. I think back to my first roller coaster, it was in kindergarten, it was at Six Flags over Texas in Arlington. I was a wee little lad, and they put me on a roller coaster at the time named Shockwave. There it is, sorry. Uh, Shockwave, and I remember thinking, wow, I don't know that I like the name of this roller coaster. This probably doesn't seem foreboding in a good way for me. Uh, and then the other thing that I noticed as we walked up to it was not just the name of it, but it was these two giant loops. And I remember thinking is this really worthy of my first roller coaster experience? Like, shouldn't someone kindly kind of ramp me up to that kind of experience? And so that was my first roller coaster ever, which probably explains why I actually did not board another roller coaster for the next 10 to 15 years. Like, my entire childhood, I avoided these things, okay? I walked off of that as a wee little kindergartner, all right, with a buzz hair haircut and just threw up my guts, it was horrible. All the other kindergartners are walking by me in my class laughing hysterically, and then I just sat on the bench for like an hour. I was like, I am not right, and I was not right for a while, okay? I think for many of us, we think about roller coasters, and we go all over the map as to our feelings towards them. Some of you are roller coaster junkies. You love them. I saw a Pinterest picture this week of a guy who was on skates going along a roller coaster. I thought, that is crazy, okay? Uh, Others of us, maybe you had more of my experience where it was just the worst awful experience that you wouldn't avoid it the rest of your life. I think whether you love them or whether you hate them, whether you find them exhilarating or whether you find them nauseating, I think for every child there's a sense in which roller coasters are a rite of passage. They shape us, they prepare us for what's coming and forward in life. And frankly, what we're going to see as we walk through our passage this morning in Exodus 15 all the way through 18 is that we're going to see the nation of Israel is going to walk through a roller coaster experience that's going to shape them and is going to prepare them. In fact, if we were to plot it out for you a little bit, here is, thanks to our graphic team, a great sense of what Exodus 14 to 18 is like, okay? I want you to get a real feel for where we're headed because this is what the nation of Israel is going to experience in the next four chapters. If you remember, if you were with us last week, Blake walked us through the parting of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 15, where Blake ended, Moses writes a song and he's singing of the great victory, the great movement of God. Miriam, by the, uh, toward the end of Exodus 15, is dancing. And so you have this great movement of God in Exodus 14. You have singing and you have dancing in Exodus 15. And then all of a sudden, we're going to see in just a few short verses, the thing is going to come plunging downward into a dip and a new lull and a new low for the nation of Israel. 
Here's why I want you to see this, because often what we think about as we think about the story of the nation of Israel and their journey, we think about Exodus 14, the parting of the Red Sea. We're going to look next week uh, as we get to Exodus 19 and the giving of the law at the Mount Sinai. We think about the nation of Israel's experience and their history, and those two moments are iconic in every movie, in every display, in every telling of the story of the nation of Israel's history and their existence. Exodus 14, the moving of God as he parts the Red Sea. Exodus 19, the moving of God as he brings the law to the nation of Israel. These two moments are iconic, and we often run to those as we tell the story of the nation of Israel. But we run right past Exodus 15, 16, 17, and 18, and the roller coaster that it is. Why? Because as we proclaim the goodness of God, as we proclaim the miracles of God, we run to the external circumstantial changes that God brings about in life. 400 years of Egyptian slavery, finally God moves, finally he parts the Red Sea, he drowns all the Egyptians. We tell that story all day long of the external and circumstantial movements of God that everyone can see that are absolutely visible and often external. And often what the nation of Israel was waiting for for 400 years, that they were waiting and waiting for that moment in time. They were looking for and they were waiting on an external change of circumstances. And they hit it in Exodus 14, but then we're going to have all the way to Exodus 19, in which finally God will bring them to Mount Sinai, and he'll bring forth the law. But the question is, if the nation of Israel was ready for that moment, why didn't we just go from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai? Why did we have to go through a roller coaster of set of experiences that we're going to look at this morning? And here's why, and here's what I'd say. Although we love the stories of external and circumstantial changes that everyone can see and that are miraculous, that scream for our attention and make for a great movie, those often actually aren't nearly as miraculous as what God does often internally in us to prepare us for what he has for us down the road. The nation of Israel is going to emerge out of Egypt, frankly, as a set of and a group of ragtag slaves that didn't trust God, that didn't know God, that wasn't ready for the plans of God. And so they emerge out of Egypt in Exodus 14. But they are in no way ready for what God has in store for them as they hit Exodus 19. So God's going to lead this ragtag group of slaves through what I'm going to call not just a roller coaster, but through the messy middle of life. Because it's going to be in the messy middle of life that God is going to shape them and prepare them for what he has. It's like a rite of passage. It's like a roller coaster that's going to shape and prepare this ragtag group of slaves for ultimately what God has. And as miraculous as Exodus 14 is, and as dramatic as Exodus 19 will be, I'm going to submit to you this morning, that the work that God does in the nation of Israel in Exodus 15, 16, 17, and 18 is frankly more dramatic and it's frankly more supernatural than anything that he does in Exodus 14 and anything that he's going to do in Exodus 19. But we love the external circumstantial change stories of Exodus 14 and 19, and we often overlook the internal work that God does in our lives in the messy middle of life. How many of us find ourselves in places in life where we have a vision and we have a dream of what life was supposed to be or what we thought God was trying to do, but we've not yet arrived at the fulfillment and the realization of that dream, vision, or experience? How many of us are still grinding and churning through, waiting for God to bring to fruition what we thought he intended to do and what he was wanting to do in our life? For some of that's health. For some of us, that's health. That We have an idea of what health was supposed to look like but our experience in life and the reality of life hasn't yet measured up to the dream or the vision we had or the expectation we had of what our health was going to be. 
For some of us who are parenting and walking through that joyful but challenging experience that we have a dream, we have a vision of what life was going to be, but the reality of life hasn't yet caught up to the vision that we had. The vision that we had of something external in life as it was going to look like, how it was going to sound, how it was going to walk, hasn't yet really lived up to what we thought it was going to be, and we find ourselves in the messy middle. How many of you are walking through a business in which you had a vision and dream of what could be But the reality of that business has yet come to fruition as to what you hoped and what you dreamed for. How many of you are walking out dating and marriage right now with a vision, a dream, an expectation of what life is going to be? But the reality of life has come nowhere close to that dream, vision, and hope. I think for every single one of us, we find ourselves this morning in the messy middle of life. And I actually think Exodus 15, 16, 17, and 18 are frankly far more encouraging as to what God is doing in our lives and when, when we just run to Exodus 14 and we run to Exodus 19. Constantly looking for and constantly waiting for some giant circumstantial change of the work of God. When often what I think God is doing right now in all of our lives is something way more internal than it is external. Something way less about the circumstances of life and way more about those circumstances helping shape and prepare us for maybe what he has down the road. That's where Exodus 15, 16, 17, and 18 are going to take us this morning. And my prayer and my hope for us is that we'd be incredibly encouraged as we walk out our own messy middle of life, waiting for the fulfillment of what we felt like God was wanting to do in our lives. Asking, where is he? I think these few chapters are going to show us exactly where he is and how the messy middle of life teaches us and trains us as to who he is and what he's doing in our life, and what he's doing in the nation of Israel's life. That's where we're going to head this morning. Exodus 15. So if you guys want to turn there, we're going to jump in. Exodus 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 22. What I want you to see as we jump in, really, at the beginning, is notice that Exodus 14 comes off of the high of all highs, right? We're at the top of the roller coaster. The slow click, click, click. All things seem good. The sky is beautiful. And then comes the plunge, right? Exodus 15, 22 to 26 is the plunge. I want to pick it up in verse 22 as we jump in. Notice what our text tells us, Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. What we're going to see in each of these stories that's going to unfold is that we're going to first see that adversity is going to strike as a roller coaster plunges downward, if you will. In Exodus 22, the adversity that strikes is that they're going to venture from the Red Sea into the wilderness, and they're going to find no water. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. We're three days from the Red Sea. We're three days from the high of all highs from the nation of Israel and their experience. That they've been waiting for deliverance from Egypt for 400 years. It finally happens in the most dramatic ways possible. They've now ventured out three days into the wilderness. And three days into the wilderness, they find no water. They venture a little further and they find water, but it's bitter. Adversity strikes and the result is that the nation murmurs or they grumble. Depending on how your translation says it. Notice verse 24. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? And then God's going to respond to verses 25 and on here. But I notice and I love what they do here. They grumble. What are we supposed to drink? You've brought us out here and there's no water. And clearly they have a God who can't handle water scenarios and water challenges, right? (laughs) We just walked away from the Red Sea, right? Like, how does this not cross their minds, right? I think about so many of the moments where I walk through the Gospels and you're like, disciples, are y'all just idiots? How do you not see it, right? And you're hitting this moment in Exodus 15 on the 
very heels of the moment of the parting of the Red Sea. And if there's a God who can do anything that they have, it's a God that can handle a water problem. But they immediately panic and they immediately grumble. Why is it? What do we learn from that? I think simply put, the first thing I want you guys to see this morning is this. It's a simple idea, but I think it's important. Changes of external circumstances will not fix internal faith problems. Changes of external circumstances do not ultimately fix and address internal faith problems. The nation of Israel has been waiting for an external circumstantial change. It finally happens, and on the heels of it, do they have any greater faith that's ready to be exercised in the midst of crisis? No. They're absolutely stuck. They're absolutely stuck in the same place they were because their circumstances have changed, their address has changed, but nothing's yet changed internally. And again, the roller coaster that they're going to walk through is not just going to be about their external circumstances, but it's going to be ultimately about the internal nature of their heart, their faith, and their trust in God, and their willingness to obey God. So he's going to walk them through a roller coaster to help finally address these things because you can change the external circumstances, but it doesn't ultimately create or change faith if we're not willing to walk with God and to trust him. And so here they are, they grumble, they complain, and God's going to move. And one of the things I was thinking about, thinking about this story here was it was in July when I just was randomly scrolling through Facebook, and I saw a video, and it was a team, it was a peewee football team uh, who uh, clearly was their first football game ever. So they got the jersey, they got the helmets on, they got a coach who's been, I think, coaching them up the best that they can, and he is on the field with the kids, probably their first game ever, and there's some cheerleaders who are out, and they have a sports like football banner that you're supposed to run through, okay? Which, by the way, my kids' first Pee Wee football game, there were no cheerleaders, there were no sports banners, so I don't know what kind of school this was, but it was pretty epic. And so the coach says, all right, go, run. And so these kids, they don't just run out in a straight line, they begin to run out in circles, and then the circles begin to kind of separate out, and the circles move in different directions, and these peewee football kids end up running in complete opposite directions, and they eventually get to the banner at the same time from opposite sides. They crash into one another, the banner goes down, the kids all dogpile on one another, the cheerleaders collapse with the banner on top of them, and the coach throws his hat down and just walks off camera, okay? What's the point? The point is you can change the external trappings of these kids, but a jersey, a, a helmet, a football, a football field, cheerleaders, and a banner makes them no more football players, right, than if they had never ever showed up to begin with. Same is true for the nation of Israel. You can change the external trappings for the nation of Israel. You can change their address, but it makes them no more faith-oriented people than this peewee football team who just showed up for the first time to a game. That the external circumstantial changes, although we often are looking for them so desperately, when they change, it doesn't actually necessarily guarantee that our faith grows, that our faith moves. You can change the external circumstances, but it doesn't actually create faith or change or fix internal faith problems. And yet God's going to move because God's going to continue to shape and train them to address these things. Notice verses 25 and 26. Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them, and he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and if you will do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commands and keep all of his statutes, then I will put none of the diseases on you, which I should have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. What is God doing here with these ragtag group of slaves? What is he trying to teach them? 
Adversity strikes, grumbling ensues, and then a miracle proceeds. And in the midst of the miracle, God's going to use it as an object lesson that he can take that which is bitter and he can make it sweet. That in the midst of that circumstantial moment, what God is trying to teach them is that he can take that which is bitter and he can make it sweet. Think about the Exodus, the Passover meal, that there's a parts of the Passover meal that highlight the bitterness of their experience in Egypt. And that even as they reflect on God delivering them out of Egypt, that in the midst of the Passover meal, they were meant to go back to to remember the bitterness and to remember that God will change the bitterness and make it sweet in their mouths. The first thing I think that God is wanting to do for the nation of Israel here is that he's wanting to fix the bitterness that's in them. Because changes of external circumstances alone don't actually fix internal bitterness. That as this nation emerges, that the address of this nation will be changed, but there's going to be dormant and there's going to be resonant in them a bitterness, a deep-setting bitterness that's going to capture the entirety of their hearts. It's going to make it impossible for them to know their God, to follow their God, and obey their God. And the first thing that God does here for the nation of Israel as is they escape out of Egypt is that he's going to come straight toward the bitterness that exists in their life. That I think he allows the water to be a touch point and a flash point for. And what he's going to say is, just as I can fix water that's bitter and make it sweet, so I can take your heart that's bitter and I can make it sweet and soft. And that ultimately for them to become who God wanted them to be and for them to be able to be involved and partnered in what God ultimately wanted them to be a part of, that bitterness had to be resolved and it had to be dealt with because it was going to be an absolute stranglehold on their ability and their freedom to become what God had for them. If the bitterness could not be addressed, they would never move forward as to what God had. So he moves them through a roller coaster to teach them that he's the healer of bitterness. I want to ask you, in the midst of the messy middle of life, as you're walking through things, as, as the reality of life often doesn't match up with what you expected, what you dreamed, what you hoped for, where does bitterness reside and where does it sit for you today? Is it a bitterness toward the Lord? Is it a bitterness toward others that are in your life that are disappointing you? Is it a bitterness toward family? Is it a bitterness toward those that have wronged you? Where does the bitterness as a flashpoint stir for you? Maybe you think that you're not necessarily a difficult person. Maybe bitterness is not something you drift to. But for every one of us in the midst of the messy middle of life, when there's a dream and a vision of what could be, and yet the reality of life is not caught up to it, Every single one of us is vulnerable to the idea of bitterness. And it is absolutely toxic for us to become the people God intended us to be and for us to walk towards and in what God ultimately has for us. One of my favorite quotes uh, is pretty strong, but I love Frederick Buchner, and he says this about bitterness. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you give and the pain you are giving back. In many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton at the feast is you. How many of us have rolled the tape in our head as to what we would say if we only had an opportunity to that person, right? How many of us have rolled over in our head and rehearsed in our head, if only we had that moment, here's the blow we would level to that person. 
And ultimately what I think we begin to see as God moves toward the nation of Israel is that the first thing that he wants to extract, the first thing that he wants to begin to transform and reshape is this bitterness issue because it is an absolute restrictor and a constraint to anything else that God might have for them. And ultimately what he's calling them to see is that he's the one that can heal bitterness, that he can take bitterness and make it sweet. And that transition and that transformation happens nowhere else but in his presence and before him. So as you walk out the messy middle of life, if you've not had that moment where you've come before him, because even Moses and Aaron later on will say, you grumble at us, but ultimately you're grumbling to the Lord. That it is the Lord who's in control of life. And so as we grumble, as we moan, as we're bitter, that ultimately that's something we have to hand off to the Lord. And say, Lord, I don't know what to do to this. I can't get myself out of this rut. I can't get myself out of this rhythm that you have to begin and change the thought processes of my mind, the track that my heart runs through, and begin to move me out of bitterness and towards sweetness. And willingness to let it go and hand it off to our king who is the one who handles vengeance and the one who handles justice. And say, it's yours. Do with it as you will. And as best as it depends on me, I will be at peace with all people and I will forgive I'll move forward. First thing I think we see from the roller coaster here is that God constantly is trying to teach the nation of Israel and you and I is that he is the healer of bitterness. And it's the first thing that he deals with the nation of Israel who emerges out of Egypt. Bitterness. Second thing that I think we see as we move through this is that God will, on the valley that was Marah and the bitterness and the waters, that he's going to move them to a paradise moment that's ultimately like a paradise or a resort. Notice chapter 15, verse 27. We're going to get two stories here that are going to be two plunging moments, all right? 15 in the bitter waters of Mara and 16 in no food in the wilderness that we're about to see. But in between these two plunging low moments in the story is this one little verse that sits right here. I don't want us to miss it because I think it's vital. Notice chapter 15, verse 27. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they camped there besides the waters. Notice the text. 12 wells of water, 70 palm trees, and they camp there by the water. This is on the equivalent of an ancient resort, is my best idea of how I can imagine it, okay? They pull right up into palm trees, resort, wells. I mean, this is a land plush. This is as good as it gets. So on the heels of 15 and the plunging moment that was a low, God nestles them right up here for just one verse. I don't know how long it is, but he nestles them right here to show them that I think that he is the refresher of fatigue. That just as much as they were having a hard time with the roller coaster, he's going to land them right here because I think he recognizes this. That God often gauges our external circumstances to allow for our greatest internal growth. That God often is going to control and he's going to dial up external circumstances all for the purpose and the intention of allowing for our greatest internal growth. Why don't we just go from chapter 15 straight to chapter 16? Why would the narrator make sure we catch this one verse? To show us the gentleness, the kindness, the dialed-in nature in which God was. To know exactly what the nation of Israel could handle. How much they could handle. When they could handle it. And so he's going to guide them along this roller coaster with great care, great gentleness, and great provision. That it's not random, but it's purposeful. I was thinking this week... um, I, a few years ago, not only did I jump on a roller coaster for the first time, that was horrible, but I remember one of the times, too, that my wife told me, it was probably about 10 years ago, that, hey, I'm in this great goals gym class. It's a spin class. You're going to love it. My wife is exceedingly positive. Uh, she could sell ice to Eskimos. I mean, so, I mean, just always able to highlight that which is tenuous, 
and challenging and make it sound awesome. So I was like, that sounds great. I'd love to. I mean, it's bicycling. How hard can it be, right? And so I jump in, and I jump in as a complete newbie. And so I'm a little bit thrown off because, frankly, there's, it's all women, and then it's me. So I already kind of feel like this is weird, okay? Uh, and then the instructor is feeling whatever, I don't know why, but she feels as the class is going on that she needs to really be relationally and verbally connected to me as the newbie. And I was thinking, could you just ignore me and like, let me drift into the background of the spin class and just don't bring any extra focus to me? Because about halfway through, I'm beginning to calculate, will I make it to the end, right? Like the sense of throw up is again coming back up for me, okay? And I literally am thinking, I don't know that I'm going to make it. And she keeps asking me if I'm going to make it, which of course I'm like, yeah, you know. But like with every third breath, I can get a word out. So like I'm starting to struggle, okay? And then at one point she says, hey class, here's what we're gonna do. It's time to really dial it up. And I'm thinking, I'm ready to pack it in, okay? And she's like, let's dial it up. And so everyone's like, yeah. And so they, they reach down these dials on their bicycle and they're dialing it up. They're spinning it and making the traction harder as if you're gonna go uphill, so to speak. And she's like, hey, Trey, you got it. And I was like, absolutely, right? So I reach down to my dial, I place my hands on it and I rotate my hands while I'm not touching and actually moving the dial, right? <laughs> It's like, no. So I go, like, as if I'm going harder, but then when I go back, I grab it and actually make it a little easier. And then I go harder, like, as a, as a ploy and kind of actually loosen it up. Because I'm like, I'm not going to make it, people, all right? And I remember thinking to myself at that moment in time, that Gold's Gym spin class instructor was the Antichrist. It re- she really was. <laughs> like, she didn't understand what I needed, okay? And I was going to die and throw up in front of all of these women, and how horrible was that going to be for me? So I've had multiple staff here that, at Grace that often are reading and leading classes, like, hey, Trey, you should come work out with us. I'm like, I don't want to have that moment with you outside the office to come back in the office when I feel like you're going to scream at me, right? And so the thing for me was this, that gym struck had no idea of what I could handle. There was no sense of whether I could dial it up or dial it down, all right? She couldn't read me, and she didn't ultimately know what I could handle. What I love about Exodus 15, 27, this one verse that gets dropped in is this, that God knows what we can handle. That it often he will push us beyond what we think we can handle. He'll push us way harder into things that we thought we never could imagine handling. But God does perfectly know exactly what we can handle and how we can maneuver and what's too much. It often feels like way too much and it often feels like way too long for us as we plunge in the roller coaster just waiting for it to level back up. But here God does for the nation of Israel realizing that unless it levels back up, unless they can catch their breath, unless they can get their legs out and under them again, they're not going to be ready for what he wants to teach them. From the midst of this moment, he gives them that moment of reprieve. He gets, they get their legs back under them. They recognize that I think that he's the refresher of their fatigue that not only had bitterness set in in the nation of Israel in the midst of his slavery in Egypt, but so had fatigue in a deep, deep level. So he creates this moment for them, for them to lay down, to catch their breath, to rest, to be rejuvenated, to be refreshed. And he knows just what they need and when they need it. With their legs caught under them with a sense of reprieve and refreshment, then the roller coaster goes plunging again. All right. Exodus chapter 16, we're going to see it come off the uh, apex or the top of the hill with Elam, and then it's going to come crunching, crushing down in Exodus 16, and we're going to pick it up as we see adversity strike again. Exodus 16 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The text doesn't say it explicitly, but the implicit sense, especially as Exodus 16 will go, is that there was no food in the wilderness. The issue is not here, not water per se, but the issue is food. 
And so there's no food. And so again, what ends up happening? They end up murmuring and they end up grumbling. Notice verse 2, chapter 16. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How utterly dramatic, right? (laughs) Uh, There are moments, and this is maybe not my best feature as a parent, but there are moments where my kids have a level of drama that I can't help but just poke, right? Like, I come back with some kind of passive-aggressive sarcasm and just laugh, right? It's really not a healthy parenting tactic. It's probably where they're going to be later on for counseling in their life. In the midst of the hardships of life, dad just poked at me and laughed, all right? But in the midst of Israel's drama, if I were the parent, I think I probably would have been like, are you crazy? Like, you would rather have died in Egypt, and you didn't have pots of meat. Pots of meat? Are you, I don't think you had that level of provision. You have a memory of the past that I don't think is very accurate, right? I would have just poked. God doesn't poke. God moves gently and graciously here with the nation of Israel because he's going to have a, another miracle that will ensue. And notice what he does. Beginning, We'll pick it up in verse 8. Moses said, then this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13, so it came out at evening that quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. And you shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And so the sons of Israel did so. And some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. And he who had gathered little had no lack. And every man gathered as much as he should eat. What is God doing here for the nation of Israel? In the midst of what feels like emptiness to them, he's showing them that he can provide and take that which is empty and make it full. That which is hunger, that which is craving, he can show that I can desire it. And I love the word that's used in the text that he says I can satisfy it. I think what he wants them to see is that he is the provider of satisfaction. I want you to think about the manner that he provides, though. How did he actually go about providing? The text is clear over and over again. Every morning came the, the dew that became flour and bread for them. Every evening came quail and landed as meat for them. And he comes every morning and every He provides twice a day, daily, over and over again, over and over again. text will go on further to say, and then leading into the Sabbath, he'll provide even extra to take care of not just that day, but the next day as well, so that they could rest and not even have to go out to gather and to take care. What is he showing them? What is he doing in the midst of these experiences? He's trying to show them that he is the provider and he's the satisfier of their souls. That in the midst of the messy middle of life, as life doesn't at all live up to what we dreamed or what we expected when we expected it, 
says, look, 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 calm down. I'm the provider of your needs. I'm the satisfier of your soul. I got you and I'll be here every single day. In fact, I'll provide to such an extent that even on the Sabbath, you can actually rest, which you haven't had for 400 years. It's interesting as we look at the text as it continues on. Notice verses 35 and 36 where chapter 16 ends. The sons of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land, and they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. It's interesting. Here we're going to get a marker at the end of chapter 16 of a giant circumstantial external change. But what are we learning from Exodus 16? And I think it's this. That God's provision always moves us to dependence, but never beyond dependence. God's provision always moves us to a place that we would daily learn to depend, but he never typically seems to overprovide other than the ability for us to learn to rest one day a week. But then we have to work again. That God's provision is such that it teaches us and it trains us that he can provide, he can satisfy, but his provision is in such a way that it never moves us beyond or we never grow out of the need to learn to depend on him for provision, sustenance, satisfaction. This is what God does. What's fascinating to me is that one of the things we pick up here at the end of chapter 16 is that this is going to go on for 40 years. Think about the number of days, think about the number of weeks, think about the number of months that are stacked up and now the number of years that are stacked up in which he shows up every single morning, every single evening for how many days, how many weeks, how many months for 40 years? What's the point of it? Ultimately, what's happening? I think one of the things I've thought about for years is that Exodus 14 uh, all the way to 19 and the wandering of the wilderness was a judgment for some people's lack of faith, that it was discipline. And one of the things I think I begin to see as we kind of slow down and we walk through these chapters is that while there was some element of discipline for a nation as a new leadership would emerge, even more so, these chapters in the roller coaster were a training ground to shape them internally to be ready for what he was going to do externally. Because finally they show up in the land of Canaan after 40 years of learning to depend, to walk, to trust, that God was the, not just the healer of their bitterness, not just the refresher of their fatigue, but 40 years I learned that he was the provider of their satisfaction. And so they finally show up into Canaan. And I think what we see is that changes of external circumstances finally and often then follow after internal growth. That they were waiting. They were waiting on what was promised and what was sung about in Exodus 15. But it's going to be quite a long journey before they actually finally experience it as they show up to Canaan. What was God doing all along the way? All along the way, while they were looking for external circumstantial change, he was doing something in them internally. It was far more of a miraculous work of God than that which he did externally. To take a ragtag group of slaves and to make them a nation that was ready for what he had. To make them a nation that was ready for what he had. In fact, as we think about the rest of the roller coaster, as it ensues, we're going to get a series of movements through in which we're going to see them finally show up into the land of Canaan. The first part of Exodus 17, as we go back into a lull, is they're going to have an enemy that's going to attack. They're going to have a crisis, and yet Moses is going to raise his staff, and as he raises his staff, God will move and provide them victory. As the staff lowers, they'll suffer defeat. And so they prop up his arms, and they see delivery brought, and they beat the Amalekites, and they have this moment of realizing that God can overcome their adversaries. They're going to have another moment as they walk through Exodus 18. And finally, a crisis is going to come upon the nation in Exodus 18 as everything is running through Moses. 
that he's the leader of the nation. He's handling every single dispute. He's handling every single issue, concern, strategic issue in the nation. And finally, something occurs in which brother-in-law says, hey, this isn't wise, this isn't good. So I want you to notice at the end of Exodus 18, exactly where our narrative ends and where we land. Exodus 18, verses 25 to 26. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times and the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade farewell to his father-in-law, and he went on his way into his own land. By the time Exodus 18 ends, by the time we're about to get into Exodus 19 and the giving of the law in Mount Sinai, what we see is that a nation has been transformed internally to know who God is and know what he does in their life, to trust him and to obey him. And also what we begin to see is that a ragtag group of slaves who couldn't trust God are now going to walk with God. And all of a sudden now we're going to have not just Moses, but we're going to have around Moses leadership that's going to emerge. All of a sudden we're going to have the makings of a nation that's going to be ready for the law to be given for them to execute it and walk it out. But none of that, and none of that would have been possible unless the roller coaster would have happened. And so for us, as we think about life in the messy middle, where is it it finds you this morning? I think there's five basic things I think we see is this. In the midst of the messy middle of life, whether it's our parenting, whether it's our businesses, whether it's our family, whether it's dating and marriage, whether it's parenting, no matter where it is that you find yourself in the messy middle, I think these chapters give us some basic lessons that we've got to cling to. The first is this, that God can heal our bitterness. In the midst of the messy middle, it is so often that we can get entrenched in bitterness that can constrict our ability to trust God and to walk with God. Also, I think we learn that God can refresh our fatigue, that we get worn out in the grind. We get worn out waiting and grinding out for God to do what we think he's going to do. But he can refresh our fatigue. He gives us moments to pause if we'll take them. Other thing I think we see is that God can provide for our satisfaction. That when we're desperate, he comes in. And when we feel empty, he comes in and he brings a fullness that doesn't sustain us in that moment forever. But it's enough for that day if we'll continue to come back to him day after day after day and to walk with him. Fourth thing I think we see, we didn't look at this entirely, but as they defeat the Amalekites, the thing we see is that God can also overcome our adversaries. That in the messy middle of life, when we feel like there are people that are pitted against us, that are blocking us, Exodus reminds us, no, no, God can overcome our adversaries. God can overcome those obstacles. God has it. Just trust him and walk with him. Last thing I think we see when we feel like we're all alone in the midst of the messy middle of life, when we feel like it's all on us, that we're the only one that can do it. I think Exodus 18 reminds us that God spreads our burdens around and he raises up leaders around us to partner with us and to move into the midst of those moments to bring about something that's ready for what ultimately God has. Again, I think we are so often looking for the external circumstantial changes of life that make for great movies, that make for great dramatic moments that we miss that really is, I think, what's more supernatural where God's even more at work is in the midst of the internal day-to-day transformation of our hearts. In the midst of the messy middle of life, he sees, he knows, he cares, and he's moving towards us. What I want to do this morning as we wrap up, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And uh, what we want to do is we create a space and a moment for you just to come before the Lord into process. As the team comes up and as they lead us, uh, I encourage you, if, if what you want to do, if your response this morning is that you want to stand and you want to proclaim, you want to raise hands victoriously, championing who he is, that is great. But for some of you, really what it might be this morning is to simply stay seated and to be reflective and to be pensive and just processing, Lord, what is it you have for me? 
What is it you want to remind me this morning? Where is it you want me to come to you? What is it you're trying to get my attention to see and to respond to? And so we want to give you a moment before we take off, before life comes back in, before we're back into the messy middle of life for you to accelerate into that space and to say, Lord, help me to grab hold of before I walk out of here. What is it you want me to see this morning? Where is it you have me and what is it you're wanting me to grasp and to learn?